Hello and welcome to another episode of An Irishman Abroad with me, Jarlath Regan. I want to say straight off the top that our chosen charity partner is, as always, Jigsaw.ie. It doesn't matter what age you are. A pandemic is a hard thing to get through. I think we can all agree. A particularly difficult week, this one. But if you're young, you will need extra help. And that is where Jigsaw, our chosen charity partner, comes in, aiming to provide young people across Ireland, across all communities, the mental health skills that they'll need to survive in life, let alone a pandemic. Please, please visit jigsaw.ie this week and kick in something, throw in something. You'll be amazed how far it will go. Or better still, come and support me on my fundraising effort for jigsaw.ie. Every Tuesday I talk to Sonia Sullivan and she coaches me towards running 2,000 kilometres in the space of a year. That's the Irishman Running Abroad Challenge and you can be part of it. I've gathered 400 runners already to take part, raise money for Jigsaw and feel better going into 2021. I have to say, I always viewed running as a form of self-abuse, but now it very much is part of self-care for me and my own mental health. If that's something that appeals to you, come on over on a Tuesday. Uh, Sonia and I will chat through why so many people quit, how you can do it right, how you can avoid injury and all those things. And that's available for free on this feed every Tuesday. Every Friday, of course, we have Marion McKeown with The Irishman in America. And that podcast, I'm delighted to say, will continue. I thought it would be over now, too, given that Joe Biden won the election. You'd think that that's the end of it. But as we all know, that is not the end of it. There's an awful lot more water to go under the bridge there. As we see if Donald Trump can actually avoid prison and bankruptcy out the other side of this thing while Marion continues to provide a level of in-depth analysis from inside Washington that you just won't find anywhere else and that is of course only available to our patrons the people that keep this show on the road if you've been hemming and hawing or if and 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 about whether you'll do this there's never been a better time I'm offering a 15% discount on an annual membership you pay in one lump sum 50 euros and you've got access to absolutely everything including our entire back catalogue and the full interviews each week here today you're about to hear my interview with Patrick Frayne the journalist from the Irish Times and this is a snippet of what we talked about this this one goes for a bit and it's a real fun chat and in-depth look at his life and his career and his writing and how he writes but you can't hear the full thing here on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you're listening to it you have to come on over to Patreon a couple of clicks later though it will populate in your podcast app and you'll see everything in the feed including the extra length ad-free episodes every Sunday. Let me tell you a little bit about Patrick. If you don't already know, he is that Irish Times journalist that I mentioned. I've been reading him for years, not realising that this man grew up down the road from me in Newbridge. I grew up on the Curragh, of course, and his father was head of the army rangers over in the Curragh camp. I knew none of this only till a couple of years ago. Here I was enjoying Patrick's writing, laughing my head off, reading his reviews of things like Dermot Bannon and enjoying his really in-depth and sensitive interviews, not realising I crossed paths with this lad. Sure, I knew I saw this lad around all the time. And I guess when this book came out and I realised uh, his, his book kind of, I guess it centres or begins with that early life. It's a collection of essays, the likes of which you will not find anywhere else, I have to say. It's up there with David Sedaris in terms of its uh, just density, depth, humour, sensitivity, lightness, consideration for the human condition. I adore this book. 
go and get it it is my recommendation for a book to have on the go this christmas because it is so beautiful because it's in this collection of essays format and it covers an awful lot of stuff that if you're an irish person like myself abroad who can't make it home this christmas as sad as i am to say it, we're not gonna be able to make it back and i know loads of us are in that boat david frayne's book okay let's do your stupid idea is perfect because it will take you back to that time and in a way give you a few of those laughs that we're all missing this christmas i am working on something big for the irish who can't make it back this christmas it will be announced very soon i'm confirming the guest list and i'll explain what it is in the next two weeks but we need something we need something big for that period where you know you know what i'm talking about December 26th in other countries. It's just not the same as Stevens's day in Ireland. It's just December 26th. So that's what I'm planning this event for. And I think you're going to love it. But for now, sit back and relax and enjoy this snippet of the Patrick Frayne interview. I want you to hear the rest of it. So come on over to patreon.com forward slash Irishman abroad to hear the rest. But for now, this is my Patrick Frayne interview. That's the small talk. Now let's go down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they're going to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Patrick Frayne, it's brilliant to have you on Irishman Abroad after all these years of reading your stuff and enjoying it and hooting with laughter as I pick up the paper, go through whatever it is you talk about, your ability to inject humour and find laughs in writing is a skill that's so much more difficult and different from the skill of performing it and saying something to elicit a laugh because there's a certain rhythm, right? There's a rhythm to speech that nearly automatically induces laughter if done correctly. It kind of doesn't matter what the words are to an extent. I know some people may roll their eyes when I say that, but th th that that's just a fact. Uh, jokes sound a certain way, but when they're written down, and when you write humour, that's an entirely different thing. So when did you first realise, I can write things that make people I know spit out their drinks um, i'm i'm not sure but i'm actually not sure it's it is that different from tone of voice like i think there's a really i there's a really interesting thing that i've realized over the years because i'm i'm a bit of a, a nerd about about humor like you know the way some comedians and I, I know you're well aware of this some comedians hate discussing the analyzing it and some really love it i really find it interesting when something is really funny why it's funny and what I've discovered in my column over the years 
is that you kind of mimic tone of voice in the rhythm of the sentences and in punctuation and word choice, which is kind of the same as um, it is kind of the same as when people talk. And the thing, the person I'm really fascinated with at the moment is Alan Partridge, who I love, because his books, I didn't listen to the audiobooks. I read the books, the I Partridge and Nomad. And he, it sounds like him on the page. And that's all about, uh, like, the like tone of voice is one thing, but you can kind of get tone of voice in pieces because when we speak, I've realized we all do this, do, whether we're aware of it or not, we're always mimicking something else we heard. And so we have these, like, archetypes in our brain, you know, so... Here's the stuffy formal voice, and here's the <laughs> here's the chirpy chappy voice, and 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 comedians, stand-up comedians, use those archetypes in in when they're delivering stuff, and you can kind of do the same in text on a page. Like I don't know if you read Craig Brown in Private Eye. Yeah, uh, you know his parodies are. That's all about finding tone, tone of voice in the text. So so I actually think they're quite similar it's just it's like moving to another instrument you know if you play piano and you can kind of slip over to guitar there's a lot of stuff that's kind of continuous you know that continues over well we'll definitely talk about music and song and uh, that's important to your life but i'm really interested to hear this bit first if you let me go on this a little bit further because I totally hear what you're saying, that this introduction of a word that people aren't expecting. I mean, it's ultimately a surprise. I remember, like, I fall into the into the latter category of people that absolutely, I'm absolutely fascinated with discussing the science of why something is funny and why something isn't. And I think we've all been in a situation where you're telling a story and you fumble a bit of it and then it's gone. The magic has left that sentence would have been great had you not bobbled the ball at the end. I remember hearing Seinfeld discuss the, you know, the two cliff edges that you are, when you're trying to bring someone to laughter, you're trying to make them make a leap from one gap to another. And yeah. if the if the leap is too far, they'll fall down in between. But if they land it with you, they'll have a certain laughter that gets induced through that. But the the key is making those cliff edges close enough that it's still a thrill and clear enough that you don't lose them halfway through. So my question is, if you relate the two, speech and writing and inducing laughter for both to be similar, are you saying your, do you read back what you are doing and then amend in the same way as somebody who is writing a speech would? I don't read aloud, which a lot of writers do, and I think I should probably do, but I do go back, um, and I'm sure you do it when you write stand-up sets, and you kind of look at how you're expressing it, and you go, there's a better way. Like, what lots of people who write funny stuff, whether it's to be delivered as in a spoken way or on the page, there's kind of loads of kind of stealth ways you can get humour in, mm. you know, so there's the... Um, and this is uh, this is terrible. But, you know, do you ever see when somebody who's not a good writer, who's not usually a humorous writer, writes a funny piece? <laughs> I'm aware and of you them. read it and you go, 
I see where they're coming from, but they're not quite getting the cliff edges right, like you described. Yeah. And it, and it's often because, like, when you when you think of a joke, or I think of a joke from my column, it doesn't always come out fully formed. You know there's something in it. There's something in this juxtaposition that's really funny. But it takes, like, several run-throughs before it, you get the cliff edge of the right width or whatever. Mm, yeah, no, it's really it. like a logical equation that if there's if there's things on the wrong side of the equals to sign, it doesn't make sense to the reader's mind or tongue, right? Yeah, and there's stuff like you might go, OK, this paragraph's too cluttered, so the humour's getting lost, mm. or this is not cluttered enough, you know, or there's a kind of, when I'm saying about Alan Partridge, like what I find amazing in him, and I think it is the same whether you write it or read it, is there'll be the point of the sentence is one joke, but actually it's the ridiculous metaphor he uses in the middle of the sentence that's really funny. And there's a kind of sleight of hand thing going on where he knows that that's really the point. Yeah. You know, this stupid metaphor he wants to get in, but he needs to give it a vehicle, which is the less, slightly less funny joke. And I kind of love that stuff. You kind of look at it and go, actually, the joke isn't what you think the joke is. The joke is where he kind of goes, where he, he, he reveals something ridiculous about his own tastes in his choice of metaphor. Well, um, it's, it, it's not the first thing I ask, but it is like, it is intriguing to me because you obviously at some point in your life, Patrick, uh, recognise that you didn't want to do it spoken and that you wanted to do it this way. What's your earliest memory of that? So I, I realized ages ago that, or not ages ago, I realized, I realized a lot of things in middle life. Uh, and one of the things I realized is I probably was in a band by default, but I really wanted to be in a comedy troupe because why I was in a band was the monkeys. Because I used to watch the monkeys. I, I think we're around the same age. Do you remember when the monkeys was on every Saturday on RTE? Absolutely. At kind of like 12 o'clock. And I loved the monkeys and uh, I just loved the idea. I thought being in a band was going to be funnier because of the monkeys. <laughs> and I so that's when I, I always wanted to be the and, and I guess, you know, when you're trying to find yourself and you look at I, I love things like the A-Team and what it says about a person like who was your favorite member of the A-Team? Oh, probably Murdoch. Yeah, of course, right? <laughs> if you'd said BA, I'd have been really surprised because the kids who said BA were beating me up. <laughs> and, and so I watched, I, I wanted to be the wacky person in a gang, which is a terrible thing to admit to. But, you know, you kind of go, OK, I, I think I can do that role. But I got sidetracked into music and I loved making music and I still love singing and stuff. But I always, we used to do with the band, we used to write these insane kind of fanzines and things in the early days of the band in particular. We were just kind of creatively kind of ridiculously prolific, like almost just vomiting stuff everywhere. And we'd like we'd make posters even when we didn't have gigs and we'd we'd write seriously. I put posters all over town for the band and we didn't even have a gig <laughs> when, when I was about 19. Basically, posters just telling people you exist. Yeah, pretty, pretty much. <laughs> and we, we, we wrote these, like me and Paul in particular, we used to write these short stories. We invented names for ourselves. Like, this is like before we realized that this wasn't cool. It was like Kinky, Bim Bim and Donut were the names we'd given ourselves. And we had, a, we had this kind of, 
we had this idea that we were part of a sinister kind of record label and we had invented a manager and we and me and Paul wrote stories, which I can't find now that we put in zines about us, like just kind of ridiculous stories. And they were kind of funny and mad. But but the response generally from people was we do a gig and we give out these insane scenes and people would be like, why are you doing this? What is this for? Like it was kind of it was a creative verge, but it didn't have the right vehicle or something, even though I'm really glad we did those kind of things. I mean, um, we are rough, we are roughly the same age. And what the listeners may not know is that we pretty much grew up in the same town. I was yeah. in the estate that you uh, grew up in a lot. My first girlfriend lived in that estate. My best friend lived there. A guy that I lived next to moved there. And, you know, it was it was quite a, you know, a, would have been considered one of the better off estates in the town. Yeah. But it was, it was full this. of fucking lunatics. I don't know if you... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. And I find um, I find small town class stuff really, really interesting and kind of funny. When I arrived in the village, which is what the estate was called, and this we, that's the estate that's the you're one. talking about. <laughs> yeah, and it kind of had it had a white picket fence kind of vibe without the picket fences. And I remember around the time we arrived because I had been living in the Curra because my dad was in the army. Um, like some of the kids were really put out because it was now only the second poshest estate in Newbridge. Because <laughs> in a state that had five bedroom houses had opened up on the other side of town. And that stuff is, it's still hilarious to me. But tell me more about the, the lunatics. Well, the, like, I wouldn't see if I remember any in particular. I mean, so much of this book is about, you know, things you went through then and how you view them now. And I'm fascinated with that side of things uh, and the, also the, just the way he, you're kind of tender with that person that was then when a lot of us are a little bit harsher on that person that we were where we go, oh, what the fuck was I thinking? But I, I, I'm similarly tender to the person that used to be in the village, that estate and encounter these madmen. Uh, I think I talked to your brother about this as well, that you know, these guys were, they answered to nobody and they didn't seem to have any supervision at it, of them. And they also had a budget. They they kind of didn't, yeah. they didn't have purse strings holding them back. Like it was, it was peculiar. I won't name names, but there were guys you didn't mess with. <laughs> what age are you, Charlie? I'm 40. Yeah, okay, so you're kind of closer to my brother's age. And I know the cohort you're talking about because <laughs> they were mad. And it's kind of interesting because I was like my group of friends. I'm still my best friend comes from that estate and I'm still really close to him. And we were kind of a very nerdy group. Like we were kind of we were literally called the nerd courage by cooler people. Um, but there was a kind of there was a younger cohort and there's a kind of interesting thing, I think, in small. T I don't think Dublin when you go to Dublin, a bigger city, like class is much more dispersed. You know, there's kind of working class areas and there's richer areas. But in a small town, everything is kind of close together. And it kind of creates these really weird class dynamics sometimes, you know, um, where you get you get kids that, you know, are quite privileged who are trying to act not privileged. And you get um, 
and you get a kind of blurring of a lot of the boundaries, which is probably in some ways healthier than Dublin, because um, I don't think it is good that people are all separated. I know exactly what you mean about the, uh, you know, there'd be guys that certainly behaved a certain way, dressed a certain way, spoke a certain way, and you were like, his dad works for Intel. What's going on here? <laughs> like, not that that means that you can't behave or look that way, but it was like you would say that there was a nearly a charade going on to be kind of doubly hard and crazy mean, even though, you know, you've been afforded every white privilege opportunity available to an Irish kid at that time in the 80s. A couple of the lunatics that you mentioned in the book were in the FCA. And, you know, by my time, I felt like the FCI, FCA felt like, you know, yeah, what Gareth Keenan would have been in in the office, uh, an, yeah. ar an army reserves for kids that liked knives and tying knots, a kind of upgrade from the Cubs. Uh, yeah. But uh, the account of the of what I don't know why the, the first chapter seems to be one that gets brought up in a lot of the interviews you've done in this book. Did that stand out to you as the obvious choice for track number one on this album? It did because it has a certain amount of pathos in it, but it's also kind of got a load of insane stories, which I think it, it was actually interesting. I did treat the book like an album because that's what I would, had been used to doing before. So I wrote a bunch of essays and then I was trying to figure out the tonal stuff. And I started treating it like uh, creating a track list. Mm. And, and consequently, when I was in bands, I'll get back to the specifics of the military essay in a sec, but when I was in bands, uh, you'd regularly do this thing where you go, oh, we need a heavy track for track four. Yeah. Or we need a faster track or we need a big long thing. <laughs> and you'd kind of write songs to order. And, and I loved that phase of making the book when I had a certain amount of the essays written and you were kind of writing things to either fill in gaps or to kind of create tonal bridges between, you know, because I have essays that are straightforwardly aimed, picaresque stories that are straightforwardly aimed at making people laugh. And I've got a f other essays that deal with quite serious stuff. And I've got a lot in between. <laughs> so you're kind of trying to arrange them in a way that gives people a smooth journey through the book. And part of that was doing it chronologically. And part of it was just introducing, I think, having a military background in Ireland is a really interesting, I now realise, kind of odd thing. And particularly living in the Curra camp and particularly the way my life went from being a kid who was really into army things to being a long haired, kind of arty, hippie kind of person. It's an interesting trajectory. So I thought it would be an interesting place to start. It really, yeah, and it really explains you, right? It explains, it, it probably gets to the point of you quite quickly. In yes. that, uh, what you once thought proved to be the opposite. And part of that is this idea of showing off. Uh, I talked to Ardell O'Hanlon about this and, you know, a show off was really the worst thing you could be. I mean, on the football field, a fancy Dan was like would get absolutely reamed out of it for even yeah. doing like a step over. It was like you could get you could get really hurt 
as somebody who thought, look at this guy who's showing off. Y you know, I you talk about this quite quite a bit in other interviews. Again, I hate referencing other interviews, but I just hate asking questions that people have asked you before. And this thing of dancing out of the shadows and kind of not wanting to appear to be a show off, but quite enjoying a little bit of praise, as we all do, results in you and many of us as Irish people making decisions to do things in such a way that, oh, this old thing. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, it's like I, I prefer being impressive after I've been underestimated. Like yes. even even at the moment, because there is a spotlight on me because the book is out, I'm like going, oh, I'd much prefer if this was someone else's book launch and I could jump out of my book and go, oh, by the way, I wrote this old thing. <laughs> you know? Well, in, um, a, in a weird kind of way you have, Patrick, and that's what I wanted to ask was, the decision to do it as a book of essays is is sort of that in some way that it isn't you going correct me if i'm wrong it isn't you going and here is my book it is carved into these stone tablets and i present them to you as my life it, it's you going oh, well you know here's some here's some some bits and then once people go there and they get in this book you had to be thinking, and then I'll surprise them. But, but that's, isn't that kind of most art? Like, isn't isn't there a kind of thing where you draw them in? Of, yeah. You try to draw people in and you kind of have to withhold in a certain way in order to get, give people the emotional experience you're trying sure. to give. Um, it's it's like, a lot of art. It's, it's not yeah. necessarily, you know, all art in that you know, when we go to see um, a romantic movie, they don't, you know, advertise it as something else. I mean, the, this this seems to me like the, that was part of your your thought on this, that I can I can actually take people somewhere they weren't expecting to go because of the format of this book. And I wondered, did anything cross your mind in terms of the attention span of people nowadays that it seems like this thing has gone like I, I absolutely adore the book and I feel like it's going to resonate with people who particularly enjoy your work in short spurts, right? They're, that's how they enjoy consuming your stuff. Did any of these thoughts occur to you in making these choices? Not consciously. I, I think the main thing is that I really like short things. I've been kind of, I in the last few years, I'd read a lot, but I read a lot of books of essays and I read a lot of books of short stories. And particularly during the pandemic, that, and that's, I didn't plan the pandemic, but a lot of people have said that they've really enjoyed the book because of the things you're saying, because it's hard to concentrate now. But like, obviously I didn't plan that, but I, I did. Um, that would be the ultimate dancing out of the shadows. Right? <laughs> so I went over to a lab in China and I devised a virus. And then I thought, while the virus is out, I release a book of essays. That would be the worst supervillain ever. <laughs> but um, I, I, I did, I have really liked shorter books, shorter essays, shorter short stories, or short, short stories. And maybe that's something to do with how my attention span has gone. But it never, 
occurred to me to do a kind of continuous narrative for this. Now, now it did kind of come together in a slightly, slightly unplanned way in that about three or four years ago, I kind of decided I wanted to do some extracurricular non-journalistic writing. And I started doing short stories and then I started doing some essays on the side and uh, Brendan Barrington, who's the editor in Penguin, but he's also the editor of the Dublin Review, contacted me about six months, sorry, about kind of a year and a half ago and said, do you have anything that we met? And he said, do you have anything? I said, I've got this essay and it was the brain fever essay, the one about mental health, my mental health. And uh, I sent him that and he really liked it and said he'd like to use it in the Dublin Review. And he said, look, if you've other stuff, send it to me. And the next thing I wrote, I was on holidays, is I wrote the essay about Brayman, uh, Gigantic, which is a very different kind of essay. It's just young men being fools and having adventures. And uh, it's kind of funny essay. And I sent that to him kind of half expecting it wouldn't be literary enough. And he kind of liked that too. So I just kept sending him stuff. And I think at a certain point, he got back and said, I think there's a book here. And at that point, I'd kind of written maybe two thirds of the book. Yeah. And a form was beginning to take shape. And that's the point at which I kind of started to think of it in terms of what do I need now? And what, what bits do I need to tell? And I don't think I'd have, I would have written like a, a continuous memoir because that's, for starters, that's, that kind of implies you have to talk about a lot more in your life than I'm necessarily comfortable with. Like these are, it's a kind of interesting thing. Like I loved Emily Pine's book and Sinead Gleason's book. And similarly, there's a kind of sense that there's a sense that they're kind of selecting what they want to tell in a very careful way, in a way that's very concerned with what the reader needs, you know, that this isn't all just about my life, here's a thing that happened. So having them kind of a select discrete things was very much how I'd always seen writing nonfiction like that. But at the same time, it's kind of.